0: Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. On this edition of the Americano podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to listen to a conversation between one of our contributing editors, Paul Wood, and Fiona Hill, who is currently at the Brookings Institute and is a former official at the US National Security Council. And they're going to be talking about the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin and President Joe Biden. And this week is a joint production with the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, the IWPR, which is a non-profit organisation supporting local journalists in the Caucasus, Central Asia, Iraq, the Balkans and, most notably, Ukraine. I know they've just sent 50 flak jackets to Ukraine for journalists there to use. It's the IWPR's annual meeting and they've invited a former trustee, Dr Fiona Hill, to speak to the meeting. Dr Hill, you may remember, gave evidence against Donald Trump at his first impeachment hearing. She was able to do that because she had been, for a time, his director for Russia on the National Security Council. She is well known in academic circles, having made a study of Russia and in particular of Vladimir Putin for many decades. She's now back at her usual home, which is the Brookings Institution. I asked her, first of all, since she had predicted the invasion of Ukraine, when many were saying that President Putin was bluffing, how she thought the war would now end.
1: Well, that is, of course, the question that everybody would know if only I had my crystal ball. I mean, I wish I I had. I mean, none of the scenarios that I play out in my head are particularly propitious or positive here, because there are many different ways that this could end. And all of them really depend on how things play out on the ground and also our own resolve. The ability of people like you and others to uh, be able to kind of bring back ground truth. So to help shape uh, the information space. I mean, look, we're getting reports now that Vladimir Putin has not been fully informed by the people around him, which is hardly a surprise. I mean, having done those jobs before, being a brief and being utterly ignored, <laughs> or being nervous about, you know, taking the messages forward because shoot the messenger tends to be, you know, part of their reaction. You know, I can absolutely see, you know, how that would happen. And clearly this war has been planned by one man in a very tiny group. I'm certainly a much smaller group than is here today on this Zoom. You know, it's clear that this is Putin's decision. He made it very clear in the iconography of the announcement of the special military operation sitting, you know, in splendid isolation at the end of an extraordinary, unfathomably large table with the others of his inner circle right to the very far end. That very staged meeting of the National Security Council also showed that not everybody was in the loop as to what was happening. And, you know, so there's a lot of things playing out because it was so close hold that, you know, obviously even the military people who are being told to move into Ukraine have no idea quite what it is that they're supposed to be doing. And then you've got this information flow coming back. So having an information picture about what What's happening on the ground becomes really uh, crucial. I think it's actually a smart move for the West and the United States and the UK to reveal this intelligence. Honestly, I mean, Putin will read that in the, the paper. He'll you know hear about this. He'll wonder. I mean, he might think it's propaganda, but he'll start to wonder because it really all comes down to how he decides to end this. Whether yes, military action is blunted, whether you know the impact on the economy is sufficient to make him change tack. His goals will always remain the same, though. And what I worry about is that there won't be any kind of neat end to this. In fact, there won't be. It might be like in Chechnya, where you know we had Hassovjurt, where I and I mean Tony and others remember this. I was part of the negotiating team for Hassavjr. There was a lot of you know, international involvement. We had the Harvard Negotiation Project working with the Ministry of Nationalities in Russia. Tony and others, you know, kind of were providing, you know, background information for this. It became very clear very quickly after the conclusion of the Hassavyot Accord. 1997, that everybody we were dealing with in Moscow saw this as just a strategic pause while they regrouped and rethought about what they were going to do to reach the original goal, which was not of compromising with Dudayev and then Maskhadov and the Chechen rebels, but of imposing their own system on Chechnya. So Putin's goals of subjugating Ukraine, of weakening Ukraine, neutralising Ukraine, neutering Ukraine have not changed. The question is really just, how much does he think he can accomplish given circumstances and so we have to in many respects shape how this ends by our unity our actions resolve resilience controlling information space as well as helping ukraine to blunt the impact of the um, russian military operation and you know diffuse the war
0: unless there's a palace coup we've got a question from sir david bell how vulnerable is putin internally is he as vulnerable as christian
1: well look the people immediately around him are all as vested as he is in all of this, right? The people who made this decision with him, which might have just been a very small handful. And when we look back at histories of palace coups, there's quite a few, obviously, in the palace of uh, the Romanovs. And there's, you know, Paul I comes to mind, you know, Catherine the Great was involved in, you know, a coup, you know, to get herself, you know, established in many respects, you know, basically sidelining both her husband and then her son, you know, sort of. So, and she's one of his um, idols, Catherine the Great, interestingly. You know, so Putin is very well aware of Russian history. And of course, in the Soviet period, we have an awful lot of moving off of, you know, Khrushchev and, you know, other Soviet leaders. And Putin knows only too well that it's highly unlikely, given the time that he's been in power, that he would be moved off into something like, a, you know, a in Peredielkina, for example, or even his vast palace in Gzendlik on the Black Sea that we've already had revealed to us and we've had the tour, thank you to Alexei Navalny. He is completely paranoid about this. I mean, it is true that he watched the video about Gaddafi being killed by the rebels in the big drainage pipe over and over again. He knows the history of Mussolini and Hitler and Ceausescu. He talks about all of this. He has actually explicitly said that he knows that if you're on the losing side, you're put against the wall and shot. So this is a constant preoccupation for him. And we've had with other leaders in the region, like Islam Karimov, for example, used to spread around rumours of his imminent demise and his illness. I mean, I know that from my you know, work in other places, just to see who would stick their head up, including his own daughter, who ends up in house arrest. So you can be sure that Putin is thinking about this 24-7. And so he'll be doing everything he can if there's any hint at all to make sure that this is not going to you know take place and again the people around him are dependent on him in the event of a palace coup they can't really trust everyone else he's the arbiter so you know the more that we talk about this the less likely I think it becomes (laughs) if you see if you see what I mean because he'll be out there looking for every sign you know or maybe this is sort of a reverse way of thinking about it I mean he is looking also for any sign that we're out to get him yeah. You know, because he's firmly believed that the United States that we're in this business, as the CIA was in the business back in the day in the Cold War, the removal of Mossadegh, for example, he's convinced that everything, even spontaneous uprisings like the colour revolutions or the Arab Spring have the hand of the CIA. I mean, it doesn't matter what Biden said or didn't say you know, recently about, you know, my God, this guy you know, can't possibly stay in power. You know, and second question, can he really? I mean, is this feasible? Putin's view is that everyone is out at some point to try to topple him. It's why he intervened in Syria to kind of stop the, you know, kind of cascade of regime change in the middle of the Arab Spring to keep Assad in place, to kind of show that actually you could counter that. And, you know, we said Assad must go in, what was it, 2012 or so? 2015, he looked like he was about to go. The Russians go in. Assad's still there. 2022, 10 years later. So Putin intends to be that man who stays amidst all of the rubble, all of the carnage. He has a very high tolerance for that precisely because he doesn't want people to have the satisfaction of seeing him going. Now, that doesn't mean to say that something might happen, you know, so, but I just think that the more we talk about it, the more we put it out there, you know, the more that Putin then is doubling down, digging in and doing, you know, everything that he can. But it may well be, just like in the case of Yeltsin and the leaders of Belarus and Ukraine getting together, that at some point, you know, people around him might just say, look, the old guy, he's not that old, obviously, is he? But, you know... He's not managing this. And remember, with Gorbachev, it wasn't just Yeltsin and others trying to get rid of him and get rid of the Soviet Union. There was also the coup of 1991. And Gorbachev is still with us, miraculously. It's quite incredible. But there's no way that President Putin wants to be former President Mikhail Gorbachev.
0: Let me just rewind to you saying we shouldn't necessarily take Biden's remarks too seriously. I mean, he is, after all, the president. What if it wasn't a gaffe? There was a tweet this morning from Neil Ferguson Another academic who who talks about policy saying maybe the United States is subjugating Ukraine's interests in this war to the bigger interest of getting rid of Putin. And that's the game that's really afoot here. Should we for a moment take these remarks by President Biden seriously?
1: Well, we should take them seriously. I wasn't suggesting that. I was just saying, irrespective of what he said, Putin Mm -hmm. thinks that we're out to get him anyway, because that's the pattern that he sees. Ever since 2003, when the United States invaded Iraq, Putin has been even more convinced, you know, than he ever was before that the United States has got regime change in mind. And so he actually thinks that, you know, kind of, yes, the U.S. did invade Iraq with the end, intent of overthrowing Saddam Hussein. So that's clearly right. But everything else, you know, he's fed through that filter as well. And then going back to the CIA, you know, hands in insurgencies and overthrows of people like Mossadegh in Iran. You know, he, he sees this pattern and doesn't believe that we've ever changed. So what Biden said for Putin is just, yes, of course. They're in this business. I mean, of course, what Biden's expression was, the expression that everybody else is thinking, you know, as he says, surely God, this man can't remain in power. You know, can he? question mark. And as I said, this is exactly what we said about Assad. Assad must go. We can't possibly imagine the future of Syria with Assad still there. Well, guess what? Ten years on, the future of Syria still has Assad there. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we have to be very careful about is, you know, basically prejudging all of this. This is why I said I'm not sure how it ends. It could end, end, you know, with a basically what becomes a temporary truce or what the Russians see as a temporary truce, with some kind of formulation that stops the war, sort of, in Ukraine, and Putin's still there presiding over all the rubble and potentially being out there till 2036. Or it also might not. And I look, I think that the big mistake would be to set this up as regime change. So I, I didn't read Neil Ferguson's uh, piece here but you know when we started to do that in Syria you know we didn't achieve objectives on the ground I mean eventually we you know start to fight against ISIS but everybody's move to get rid of Assad didn't succeed. When I was at the National Security Council there was the same goal obviously without a military intervention to get rid of Maduro Maduro's still there in Venezuela. You know despite the fact that he didn't win the election. You know we've had the same thing with Cuba you know, with Iran, that once things are defined in that, you know, basically frame of regime change, they take on a different character, and they're often not successful. Thinking in phases about basically trying to stop the war, blunt all of the effects of it, make it very difficult, constraining, you know, Russia's ability to prosecute this war, or limiting Putin's options is really the way to focus on that. And as far as I know, from my interactions with. People in the administration, that's what remains the goal, even though at this point they find it very hard to fathom how one could have any relationship in the future with a Russia where Putin is still at the helm. We've
0: got a lot of good questions coming in, but let me just ask you about what I think is the most important aspect of this, which is whether this ends in a nuclear exchange beyond Ukraine's borders. It's quite terrifying the way the Russians keep dropping hints about this. And I think you, in an interview with Politico, said, you could see Putin actually doing this. This sounds crazy to me. Should we all be stocking up on food and worrying about a nuclear cloud drifting over Europe?
1: Well, look, you and I and many others, actually, I'm not quite sure how old you are, Paul, so I don't want to be rude about this. But I'm 56. I was born in 1965, three years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. My entire childhood and teenage years were shaped by these same fears. The Communist Party, the Soviet Union, they had chemical and biological weapon stocks, in addition to nuclear um, weapons, both tactical battlefields, intermediate nuclear weapons, and long range strategic nuclear weapons. This was a perpetual concern. It was a part of their doctrine to use them. Putin comes out of that milieu. I mean, basically he's going to be 70 this year. He was very much a Cold War warrior. I mean, for him, of course, it was something to contemplate. It was part of their doctrine, the use of uh, these kinds of weapons. This has been the unusual period of actually not having that on the table of the agenda. And I'm not being blasé about this, but, you know, actually I did have to take iodine tablets when I was a student in Scotland in 1986 after Chernobyl, because we got thoroughly irradiated in the first wave of radiation coming from Chernobyl. And, you know, we couldn't drink the milk or eat the lamb, you know, for a long period and that had to be the slaughter of lamb stock. So, you know, we already had that's actually another risk. That they've taken hold of Chernobyl. They've taken hold of uh, Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. You know, we've just had Grossi, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, going out there. We've got to worry about, you know, basically nuclear security from the civilian nuclear plants as well. But it's absolutely the case the worry that we've had for years, going back to 2015 and and you know beyond that, is that we've seen, as in, often in old Soviet times, the Russian military. Exercising again, you know, with tactical battlefield nuclear weapons. If you read the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, they've been reviving articles, you know, from earlier talking about this. But the very fact that he's talking about this means he's already deployed it, right? You know, he's he's basically put it on the table to get exactly this kind of reaction. And he's already, in a way, crossing that threshold of the impermissibility of use by suggesting that he might, because he's trying to see how we're all going to react. Putin will be loving the fact that we're all talking about it, but we do have to take it seriously and that means we have to keep ramping up our diplomacy because this will put us over the threshold of the violation of the nonproliferation treaty we were supposed to have a review for that this year. We already have so many nuclear powers. We have Pakistan and India, ones we're not supposed to talk about. We have North Korea, you know, clearly trying to hold us all to nuclear backmail. We're on the verge of trying to finalize again the agreement with Iran over its nuclear weapons program. I mean, we need to be talking to the Chinese and all other nuclear powers, not just the permanent nuclear powers about this, because Putin is putting us into a space where everyone will want a nuclear weapon. That's the message from this. The the message is, and actually, you know, my friend Pam and I wrote about this in, you know, 1994, maybe Ukraine shouldn't give up its nuclear weapons because it would become vulnerable, you know, to pressure from Russia. And that will be the lesson. The lesson of all of this is that, yes, Ukraine shouldn't have given up nuclear weapons and everybody else should be trying to get hold of a nuclear weapon because Putin is making it permissible, you know, basically to get away with things, literally to get away with murder if you have a nuke and you're threatening to use one.
0: So quickly, just before we get to the questions, which I'll ask you to rattle through, are you one of these people who believes this is Munich, we need to stop him now in Ukraine, otherwise we'll have to stop him in Poland or Belarus, and doesn't that lead to a risk of a nuclear exchange?
1: there's a risk, you know, throughout with Putin, there's always a risk, right? And I mean, that's what he's saying. He's basically saying, I'm a nuclear power, I can do whatever I want. And you, the United States, you know, that's to the United States, have been doing this all along as well. The reason you've been getting away with things like invasion of Iraq and other stuff that you've done is because you're a nuclear power, and nobody's being able to challenge you. And so, you know, there's nothing exceptional about all of this, I'm going to basically be doing the same. And he wants us to be thinking like this, he wants us to be intimidated. It's been like this for a very long time, Paul. I mean, the, the problem is that we've kind of taken our eye off the ball. I mean, again, you go back to the very beginning of the Putin presidency coming in on this war in Chechnya, the kind of pattern that he's followed all the way through this. He's already used polonium on Alexander Litvinenko in London. He's used Novichok, a banned chemical agent, after they said, and they made this big fuss about getting rid of their chemical weapon stocks in Salisbury. And he already triggered off the Wagner group to shoot at American special forces in 2018 in Syria. All times he's kind of crossed thresholds. And again, there's been a pattern. I mean, when I was in the NSC, we were always typing up the latest pattern, no memo, you know, just to point this out. It's not about being the Russia hawk or, you know, this or that. It's actually just calling it out for what it is, which means that we should have been focused on this and maintained our focus, you know, for all of this time. And we've lost the ball repeatedly. On just you know, kind of what Putin and the people around him in the Kremlin are capable about of. This isn't the whole of the Russian people, the Russian population, or even the Russian government and the Russian state. Russia has been ruled for 22 years now by a guy who's an operative from the KGB, whose speciality is in ruthlessness and dirty tricks.
0: As you wrote in your biography, Mr. Putin, operative in the Kremlin. I'm going to take a few questions from the very distinguished guests at this event. We've got George Packer, who may in fact be in Ukraine. I'm not sure if you are, George. Anyway, but a very good question. Do you think the US government has learned that the reflex to keep intelligence close held can cede the information initiative to the adversary? Are we seeing a fundamental change in how intelligence is made public? I'll ask you that in the context of the fact that you were the one of the very few people to predict that Putin would actually do this. You did this back in January. And I wondered if you were talking to former colleagues who were seeing the intelligence or just... Listening to the fact that the intelligence was being made public.
1: Yeah, look, and I also, you know, felt based on you know the work that I'd done on Putin and you know previous you know jobs that Putin was always going to do something. I will look, you know, first of all, in all humility, say that I wasn't one hundred percent convinced, as many of my colleagues were, that he was going to go on full on invasion. I thought he was going to do something pretty nasty, but I, I wasn't sure. Gave it a 50-50 at one point, you know, that, that he was, you know, going to go on full on. I mean, I was pretty convinced he would do a lot of the things that we've seen in the South and the East, Sea of Azov, you know, Kherson, Mariupol, Melitopol, you know, going to Odessa, expanding and Donbass, because that's what he'd intended to do in 2014, under the rubric of Nova Erecia. And, you know, what George has said, and, you know, I'm really glad that George is there and, you know, like everybody else doing this reporting, you know, is, is pretty important because, it's been a mistake in the past to keep that information so close hold there were many times when i was in the government where we could have shared this more broadly without giving away sources and methods you know for example because some of it was just obviously common sense and patterns that others can see look at Bellincat and all the information that they put together both on mh17 along with Alex valian who had you know tried to assassinate him and all of the work that they did together on putin's palace and the black sea the work that they did on Salisbury and the GRU guys, you know, basically going there and what they did. I mean, there's an awful lot of information that's got out there by journalists, by people affiliated with IWPR, by people like George Parker, people like yourself, and, you know, many other people who are on this Zoom who have been, you know, way ahead there when it could have been, you know, verified and backed up by, you know, other information from inside of the government. I think, you know, the turning point really does start to come with MH17 because it was just absurd that we ceded the information space to the Russians. My colleague at Brookings at the time, Hannah Thorburn, who now works on the Foreign Affairs Committee at the Senate, was on these, you know, kind of Ukrainian-Russian chats at that time on, on the Internet. She ran into my office and said, they've shot down a plane. I mean, she ran into my office in real time because she'd been monitoring this. She spoke Ukrainian and Russian. She'd spent two years on the ground in Ukraine. And she, in real time, got that. She, she, you know, kind of basically captured the screenshot that, you know, the, the whole kind of chatter of these guys basically saying, oh, shit, you know, we we shot down. We thought it was a, you know, a kind of Ukrainian transport plane. It looks like it was, you know, a passenger plane. And so we should have got out there and, you know, said what we, we knew in real time. Part of it is because of, you know, our own reticence about having a full investigation. But the Russians don't have that kind of reticence. You know, they were already out there ahead of the curve, you know, basically muddying the whole story, saying that this was somebody aiming for Putin's plane. This was the CIA filling a plane with corpses. I mean, just absurdities. And so, you know, that in a way was kind of a turning point of people seeing look in real time, they knew what had happened, but finding themselves constrained by our rules of the game. It's the same, you know, with journalism, Where you need to say, well, on the one hand and on the other hand, where well, you always have to have the other side of the story. I recently did a piece where, you know, I made the actual assertion that's not just assertion but a fact that the russians have been on the ground in donbass and the fact checker kept saying but the russian government says they're not on the ground and i was like yes but that's bs they are on the ground can you prove they're on the ground i said well okay then you know so i start sending all the stuff from bellingcat and everything else but i can't send them you know the intelligence well because they're on the ground but there's this you know constant well they've said this and well they've said that that gave them the whole domain of the information space to manipulate. We saw them do it in 2016 in the intervention in the um, US presidential election. We had to wait for the Mueller report to state the obvious about what the GRU had been doing in the Internet Research Agency, for example. And you know, now also with Salisbury and with Scripple, part of the reason all the information isn't out there is because of Dawn Sturgis's death, which is just an awful outcome there. But there is an inquest still going into her death inquests in the uk take an awfully long period of time and although teresa may i think teresa may was the first mover on this by announcing that the skripals had been poisoned with novichok i mean that was a pretty bold move i think she actually changed the format there because of knowing of course that the kremlin had been behind the okay for the poisoning of litvinenko with polonium but again you know not letting that information get out there and letting that be basically trolled and reshaped by by the russians Again, we ceded the information space. It had to take Bellingcat and others to get the information out because of the inquest going on. So we constrained in many times by our rules of the game, our rules of reporting, the rules of investigations, when in fact, if we've got some pretty ironclad information, we should get it out there. And I think that that's exactly what's happened. It's been that learning curve, realizing that you know, from 2014 onwards, we've been kind of falling behind and ceding the information space. The Russians, when we actually have ironclad information. And I think, you know, the Biden administration did something that was very important. They did a public warning of the kinds of warnings that I and others would have done previously behind the scenes. They got out there because you know they realized that something was going to happen. And that they really had a duty to warn as well, given all the other things that had happened. So I mean George, you know, is right, there is a shift here. It is very important. And, you know, I was seeing patterns, but yes, I was also hearing from former colleagues. They weren't giving me, you know, all of the information they had, but they said, look, you know, and I knew then that they must have something actionable, that, you know, something that where they have these kinds of high confidence from my own experience, that they know they really had something here, that it was very clear that the game had changed and that Putin was preparing to do something and something big.
0: Well, I'd love to know what the CIA and the NSA is picking up from within the Kremlin walls right now. And Gillian Tett, I'm not sure Gillian if you're still with the FT, but Gillian Tet formerly or currently a very distinguished FT journalist, wants to know, what's the military thinking? Are we going to get a mutiny here by the army? And a linked question, she's quite surprised to see that Navalny is still alive. What do you think of
1: that? Yeah, gosh, I mean, on the Navalny point, I've been worried sick as well. And I know that others have been around him, that this would be the perfect time for him to... I think, in a way, better not to speak about it, to give them ideas in some respects as well, because I, I know that very much the people who have been, you know, associated with him, it you know, have been kind of pushed out, have been ringing alarm bells for some time, hoping that, you know, perhaps he could be even released, you know, ahead of what seemed to be this kind of imminent confrontation. So I think, you know, keeping an eye on Navalny, keeping him in the spotlight, keeping him in the news as much as possible, making sure that we all know he's out there is, is pretty important, because, you know, clearly they wanted to kill him. And they still wouldn't hesitate all kinds of circumstances to finish that off because he's a threat for what he stands for and just in himself as a person, as somebody who's very open. He said that he wants to challenge Putin for the presidency. I mean, he had some some real attraction there, as well as moral standing, and he did something amazingly brave. Some would say foolhardy, but it's really an incredible act of bravery and also confidence in the future of Russia itself by returning. I mean, he's basically making that statement that Russia isn't about one man and that everybody has agency and everyone should stand up. And that's a very powerful, powerful symbol. Now, in terms of uh, the military, there's all kinds of interesting indicators here. I mean, Russia doesn't really have that much, as you well know. I mean, you know this as well as I do the history of military coups, except the Decemberists. <laughs> you know back in uh, Big one. <laughs> the whole period of 1815, after the expulsion of uh, Napoleon and his forces and the Russians pursuing them back uh, to France and coming back with the demand for a constitution. there's been you know very little of uh, that kind of streak within the the Russian military. However, it does certainly seem that people are refusing to fight. And in fact, there's hints that I got from another colleague who follows these things extremely closely this week, saying that they've seen signs of actually legal action being taken by some members of Roskvadia, the Russian you know, National Guard, who refused to go into Ukraine because there wasn't a declaration of war, kind of interesting they didn't in uh, the special military operation, they got basically fired, and they're actually contesting their dismissal. And the lawyer who is basically working with them has also had a lot of inquiries from Russian military figures at uh, different levels, wanting to actually maybe even take a collective action suit, which is very interesting. Then, of course, there's the whole, I mean, I don't know what to make exactly of it, Shoigu not being seen, you know, for 12 days all these stories now about the fact that putin wasn't getting the full briefings and all of the information of how things were going on the ground Zelensky's interview with journalists recently about all the body count The soldiers mother's committee of course being sidelined before along with memorial before the invasion obviously with a mind to kind of pushing them out of the action but as you know as well as anyone else i mean you covered all of this you know back in the past as well the soldiers mother's committee were the group that came out of the carnage of chechnya the use of conscripts the massive losses and if it's actually true that the losses are as high as some of the reporting is that's already worse than it was in chechnya in terms of the loss of personnel and If Putin didn't know conscripts were used, I mean, one of the reasons for that would have um, his admonition against use of conscripts is because he too remembers what happened in Chechnya. So if you trigger off again, responses from soldiers, mothers and their families, the revitalization of that group, even if it's been sidelined, you know, re-emerging in some way, not so much of a mutiny, but this kind of pressure that starts to build up within the Russian military, you've got the stopgap question kind of coming up in April and May, what do you do about the next, you know, kind of round of conscription? The talks about bringing in not just the C and Chechens, you know, obviously have a whole different view on things, but uh, foreign fighters, the Wagner group, that's already starting to show that cracks are appearing in the military. And so I think it's obviously something that we have to watch very closely. But if it comes in the form of a formal mutiny, that seems less likely, but you may have other pressures building up. But really, again, constrain the ability of Putin to prosecute this war in the way that he thought that he could. I mean, he's already gone one well beyond it in terms of the temporal extent in any case.
0: Well, that brings me to another question, which is, are we now at the point or getting to the point where both sides are exhausted enough they have to enter real negotiations? And it struck me, this extraordinary press conference last week by the general staff of the army saying, well, actually, we only really want the east. Let's just concentrate on the east of Ukraine. That seemed to me an extraordinary humiliation for President Putin very directly, but maybe that was the game all along, just carve the country up, split it up into bits. What do you think?
1: Well, look, my assumption at the very beginning was that was exactly what they wanted to do, carve it up. And remember, we had that extraordinary press conference by Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus showing him up, you know, with carved up in was it four or five bits of Ukraine, plus Moldova, you know, in the crosshairs as well, that had a reaction. And people were like, what was that? Was that a mistake? Was that deliberate? You know, and if it was deliberate, why? You know, was it for or against the war? What was Lukashenko up to? I mean, you know, who knows with Lukashenko, right? But that was, of course, feeding into this very clear picture, when Putin says, you know, right from the very beginning, that Ukraine is not a real state, you know, telling George Bush and many others that part of it was in Eastern Europe and part of it was given to us, you know, going back to the sort of 17th century views of Ukraine, everything that he's actually said about Ukrainian statehood and, you know, its past history, Kiev and, you know, the, the ties to Russia and the Russian empire and orthodoxy and the Russian world that he's envisaged. There are, however, you know, some other things playing out here. Konstantin Zatulin, the Russian member of parliament, who is in charge of the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, and Russians abroad, Russian speakers abroad, that 25 million who have ethnic Russians or Russian speakers who found themselves in places like Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and elsewhere after the end of the Soviet Union. He was pushing a resolution through parliament to declare Belarusians and Ukrainians Russian, you know, which also adds a wrinkle to this, which is rather troubling, you know, which might also then enable the incorporation of parts of the east, you know, into Russia, just like the annexation of Crimea. So there's all of these signs. And again, going back to the early 1990s of a desire to dismember Ukraine. Now, the question is whether, as you said, that was the plan all along, going really big so you can guarantee something. That's why I started to wonder after the initial invasion, did you sort of go in, you know, kind of so no half measures to ensure that they got something at the end of it? Uh, recognition, full recognition of Donbass, you know, that that looks like a concession, you know, because it's gone in so big that the whole of the country is jeopardized with all of the DNR and LNR and the full administrative borders recognized as independent and potentially futurely part of Russia after a referendum, recognition of the annexation of Crimea, the taking of all of the port cities around the Sea of Azov, Kherson as well, you know, the kind of menacing of that old territory of Nova Sia that they were trying to aim for in 2014, you know, all of this is totally possible. The other thing is that we have to be extraordinarily careful about thinking that they are basically moving into that space, because this could easily be a diversion, again, that strategic pause to regroup that we saw with Hassa Vyot in Chechnya, when actually they were just reassessing about how they were going to pursue the, the eventual goal. And you know there's still an awful lot of risk there. And as the U.S. administration has said, if you judge on the action rather than the words, you still see you know this bombardment, you know this desire to to level the place, almost you know, the deliberate view and probably is in fact deliberate of trying to harry out the civilian population. You know, get rid of them, get them on. You know, the I don't think Putin has any worries whatsoever about just taking over rubble. He's done it before in Chechnya. Assad's presiding over rubble in Syria. Yeah, the Turks did similar things in Cyprus, northern Cyprus, taking Famagusta, you know, for example, and, and laying waste to the town and some of the other towns on the border with the southern parts of Cyprus back in the 1970s. I mean, Putin knows that this is a trick, you know, in, in kind of warfare, you know, you lay waste to a place and then, you know, you just hold on to it. But the civilians, you know, have all gone. It's a lot easier to control that way. So, you know, very sadly, from the perspective of those of us, all of us, right, who would like to see a different end to this. You know there does not seem right now any particular end in sight so i think that what's happening here is putin is pushing the military to basically adapt and to come up with something that he can spin as a win for a temporary period i mean it may well be that he's going to as i said negotiate something temporary and then you know kind of see what else he can get out of it which makes it even more imperative for us to keep up the pressure to keep unified to keep pushing keep supporting the ukrainians and to basically kind of keep up with the intense diplomacy keep up with the sanctions and you know not uh, lose sight of this you know we have to be careful not to indulge our own wishful thinking i think is that part of the message we've got a
0: question here about whether the ukrainians are going to be forced to end up signing some kind of treaty to be neutral and not to join nato and whether then georgia will be expected to follow let me kind of reverse that question and say shouldn't take the ridiculous rhetoric about nazis and drug addicts seriously But is there a core Russian interest here that we ought to listen to and respect and maybe try to empathise and understand with the Russian point of view, even while they're laying waste to Ukrainian cities? I realise that sounds an odd way to pose the question, but if it is to be a peace agreement, some understanding is going to have to be reached with Russia. Do they have any point in any of the things they're trying to achieve?
1: Look, there's always been an important element all the way along about strategic empathy in the terms of understanding where your adversary or the other side may be coming from even if you know you don't actually, from your own perspective, share those views. So it certainly is the case that Putin and the people around him think of NATO as a threat because of its capacity and its capabilities and their interpretation of what NATO is, and I can lay out there why they think what they think you know for example so if one were looking you know back to the 1990s and thinking about the expansion of nato purely from the russian point of view one can make a pretty strong case as people like john Mearsheim and all of these do that this was a mistake you know from the point of view of relationships with russia the germans and you know, others for many years at so many conferences would have talked about thinking about how we could have had a sort of a peace treaty at the end of the cold war that kind of created a different european security arrangement you know, kind of a different version of the Helsinki final act. I mean, we're we're still talking about that, right? We still are gonna have to, at some point, think about a reincorporation of Russia in some form, just as like we had to with Germany after World War II and Japan after World War II in some new security arrangements. So we do have to start thinking about all of this. But the other kind of flip to this, of course, is what NATO itself was about at the end of the Cold War. I mean, Putin and the Russians thought NATO would disappear you know, from our point of view, NATO was a defensive alliance, it was a collective security arrangement, it was built up on mutual agreement, we didn't force, the United States didn't force other countries to be in NATO, the Warsaw Treaty Organization was something different, that was a sort of a forcible collective security arrangement, very much dominated by the Soviet Union, and you absolutely saw that with the invasions or let's say the interventions in 1956 in Hungary, 1968 in Czechoslovakia and in the 1980s in Poland, where they wanted to kind of, you know, have their own interpretation of socialism and communism in their countries and wanted to go in a somewhat different direction. You know, the United States, of course, was occupying Germany uh, during the Cold War, along with, you know, the United Kingdom and the Allies. But it wasn't in the process of invading its um, allied member states during the Cold War. And occupation was, of course, the consequence of World War Two. So, you know, we saw, of course, NATO from a very different vantage point, as did ultimately the countries of Eastern Europe that wanted to join it. The push for the expansion of NATO came from those very three countries initially that had been the subjects and the objects of a Soviet intervention, Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic. So, you know, they were the ones that wanted to join NATO for you know their own purposes. And that's kind of how we got into this debate. Now, we should have been very mindful of how the Russians saw it, and particularly people like Vladimir Putin, who comes out of this Cold War environment and was always going to see it very negatively. And the one incident that I always talk to everyone about when I'm trying to explain this is 1999 and the bombing of Belgrade, which was conducted as a NATO operation. And I happened to be in St. Petersburg, exactly as this happened for a conference, and we had people like Grigory Avlinsky from Jabloka and all kinds of people who were very well disposed towards the West, Chubais, and they were all shocked, completely shocked by this. They were taken aback and they kept saying, well, why would NATO do this? Why would NATO bomb Belgrade? And, you know, we would go through the whole thing about, you know, the ethnic cleansing, you know, what was going on in Kosovo, you know, the massacre of Albanians and you know, the whole that. And they just didn't get it because they kept saying, but NATO um, is only supposed to intervene if there is an Article 5. Serbia didn't attack a NATO member. And so then their view as a whole changed, everybody's view changed of NATO. NATO went from being what we said it was, a defensive alliance with very clear rules, to in their view, something else, something that we would use out of expediency. And I literally, I remember Yavlinsky saying, well, does this mean that NATO could bomb Moscow because of Chechnya? Because this is against the backdrop of the emergence of the Second War in And we said, of course not. I remember having this whole discussion with Alexei Abatov and others, and we were saying, of course not. Uh, but you know, they didn't feel particularly convinced. And then of course, you know, after that, NATO was used in operations in Iraq and in Afghanistan and in Libya. And it just, you know, basically concentrates and consolidates this idea among, you know, people like Putin, but many others too, that actually NATO is an offensive military. Alliance that is kind of used for other kinds of purposes. And these whole rules about Article 5, they got it about Afghanistan in 9-11 and you know, the triggering of Article 5. That, that doesn't really mean anything. And NATO is just an extension of the United States because the United States wants to use NATO to further up its operations, just as Russia does with the CSTO. It's, you know, poor man's version of the Warsaw Pact, the collective security treaty organization with all the countries that are militarily dependent on it, like Armenia and... Kyrgyzstan, you know, Belarus, for example, and then all of the big debates during the Trump era about NATO, where, you know, Trump's calling out the Germans, everyone for being deadbeats, that just, you know, kind of underscores for the Russians. Yeah, exactly. This is just the United States. The United States has been paying for everything all along and that NATO is nothing without the United States. This, this NATO is just an extension, just like the CSTO is for us. And so we should have been extraordinarily mindful all the time about how they were reacting to this. It doesn't mean that it's our fault that, you know, Putin made this decision because I this is his decision. But we should have been much more clear about what was the reaction, how we were going to handle it, how we were going to mitigate it. You know, and a part of our problem is because we've had it's not a problem. It's the nature of our democratic systems, but it becomes a problem in managing Russia. One guy in power for 22 years, stewing in his own juices, thinking all these things, getting more and more entrenched in his ideas. And we have constant changes of administrations, national security advisers, chiefs of staff, all the people that they interact with. In the Cold War, there's more permanence in our interactions. Since the Cold War, there's just been this constant churn and change. Every administration has a different idea. Putin's always saying there's no one to talk to, and we've constantly had flipped and flopped on all of these issues, sending massively mixed messages, and not really kind of paying attention in a consistent fashion about the way that Putin, in particular, the people around him, have been reacting to things.
0: Well, that brings me very neatly to a question from Janine Giovanni. Jean and I met covering the Chechen war some 23 years ago. Yeah. And she wonders about a war crimes prosecution of Vladimir Putin. Any chance at all of that? If there was a special court convened, would he ever be brought before it? And what effect does that have on him domestically? I would worry, for instance, with his back against the wall, if he thinks he's going to The Hague, he will do anything to stop that happening.
1: Well, absolutely. On that last point, of course. Of course he will. I mean, he saw what happened to Milosevic and Karadzic and, you know, everybody else. I mean, he's seen people being tried in absentia, And look, he also knows that the United States has resisted these kinds of activities. Right. I mean, particularly around the discussions about Iraq in 2003. And the United States has not signed on to the ICC. I mean, Putin will just see this as basically being you know, punitive and directed towards him directly. This, however, does not mean to say that we should not be investigating all of this. Absolutely, we should be. And we should be making that case, and I know people are, and I know the administration has got, you know, a whole, you know, apparatus there, setting up, documenting all of this, as, you know, are a lot of um, people in the legal sphere. The Ukrainians are working with people to document more crimes. They absolutely should be documented. And this whole discussion about reparations, you know, making Ukraine whole, we have to have that serious discussion. I mean, i'm mean, sure all of us you know particularly in the british system you know we always remember in our history classes the you know the debates about the reparations clause on germany after world war one I. I always kind of remember you know the whole Kinsey and others you know kind of push back against that you know kind of thinking of germany as a lemon that you're squeezing until they make the pips squeak. i remember all that from my you know kind of history classes at school you know obviously we have to be somewhat careful about all of these issues in the way that we think them through but absolutely we should be investigating this thinking about it and then factoring in just as you said here the likely reactions what do we want to you know get out of this we want to have support for Ukraine to be rebuilt and at some point we do want to have an accounting for it but if we don't handle it in the right way we're actually more likely to be getting as you just said here the reaction from Putin and you know one of our big problems and I mean I, I was writ large but also very specifically to the United States is the United States doesn't look like you know, basically, how to put this here. You know, the right actor to be out there going and telling other countries about the importance of this, because there was so much of an international backlash as there should have been um, to the war in Iraq. There is that history of the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties of U.S. interventions. You know, particularly with the CIA, Mossadegh is you know, the classic example, but there were so many others. This needs to be a case that others have to make here. You know, the Swiss, for example. You know, others that you know have a pretty unblemished record. Of, you know kind of conduct in international affairs to go out there to you know the rest of the world community look the chinese themselves and the you know the koreans have all worried about you know world war ii and what happened to them and you know their relationships with japan we've got all kinds of you know issues about you know what turkey has done in the past you know for example you know the greeks and you know the sort of cypriots there's a whole world of minefields out there for how This could be handled. We've got a lot of lessons that we know from Germany in the way that the Nuremberg, you know, trials that are more positive on that front, you know, negative lessons about how these things have been handled. You know, we've got whole discussions out there about truth and reconciliation commissions. I think, you know, this is something that we need to get ahead of, get a grip on, and have a really serious discussion about, you know, behind the scenes about how we're going to handle it. But the accounting of and the collection of evidence about war crimes is pretty essential. And you and, you know, others the media are playing a very important role in this as well
0: well sadly, i think we're out of time and i apologize to everybody who sent me a very good question i didn't relay it to dr hill Uh, dr Hill, incidentally you are you have the best job reference i've ever seen which is donald trump putting out on official press release that you were quote unquote a deep state stiff with a nice accent i think i'd have that framed (laughs) i I did did have it
1: framed actually by a colleague thought that it would (laughs) be (laughs) a nice gift for me i was like thanks you know but i do have it on my shelf to laugh at now and again you know but Yeah, my, my job, you know, kind of basically assessment that came a little bit too late, you know, for when I was there. And first of all, he said he had no idea who I was, by the way. But then at the end, he <laughs> Another compliment. He did, right, you know, I have no idea. I've never seen it before in my life.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. more importantly, I think Joe Biden as vice president was asked what he was reading. And he said it was your book about Vladimir Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. This has been a masterful survey. I think one of the best discussions that I've heard on the current crisis. Uh, we are all enormously grateful. Thank you so much. And that was Dr Fiona Hill talking to me earlier. Do join us again on Americano for more news from the United States and beyond.